Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work. Welcome to another episode all about management, leadership, and employment in the workplace. Two beauties for you today. The second one, self-promotion for introverts. Let's get that straight. Self-promotion for introverts, the quiet guide to getting ahead. My discussion with Nancy Ankowitz, who is in fact a coach for people who have trouble getting it out, have trouble getting it heard, and have trouble being recognized for their value. As the New York Times quoted, filled with tips, the author's tone is supportive and she does not argue that introverts should become live wires. Nancy will bring you out of yourself if you're an introvert and at the conclusion, if you're not, you may wish you were one because she can make the best of you for your talents. And we will begin with the curse of the mogul, what's wrong with the world's leading media companies and my discussion with Ava Sieve. You'll enjoy it. Stick with us. Here we go. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work. Talking this afternoon with Ava Sieve, who is the co-author, along with Jonathan Nee and Bruce Greenwald, of a book that is subtitled, What's Wrong with the World's Leading Media Companies. It's a serious study. It is entitled The Curse of the Mogul, so it obviously has something to do with the people at the top of media companies, and that may underscore what is wrong with them. Um, Ava, why did you, why did, how did this book come to be, and why is it labeled The Curse of the Mogul? Well, the book is a uh, product of a course that uh, the the authors, uh, Bruce Greenwald and Jonathan Nee and myself, taught at Columbia Business School for six years. Actually, this is the seventh year that the, the course is being taught. And we thought it would make sense to make this into a book. The, the MBAs who we work with uh, really are interested in the structure of the media businesses, but really, one of the reasons they love to go into the business is because it's a kind of a glamorous thing. So. No matter what you do, uh, you have to address the fact that media is pretty glamorous, and in many cases, the CEOs of these companies are very much in the news. So they are uh, part of the the concentration. The, they really do attract a lot of uh, attention from the, from the press, um, and so that's why we figured that this would be a good uh, way to enter into discussing the media businesses. One of the points that came out clearly in the book is this is an economic treatise in some measure as to why people would ever invest in these companies when in fact their return relative to the S&P um, is half or less than so that they're, they are not uh, they are not a good investment. Is that a, is that a fair statement? Oh, for sure. I mean, it, you if you weren't going to make a generalization, which we actually don't advise you to ever make a generalization <laughs> about companies. But don't if, buy a media and don't buy a baseball team. Right, right. We would never say that. You would have to look at the individual companies because in any industry, there are companies that are better and there are companies that are worse. Obviously, there's always you know people who are above average and people who are below average in terms of companies. But in, in but general, as a, group. as a group, they do not return. They do much worse than uh, just an index fund. And I agree with you. I do not understand what the public is thinking. Why, if this is the history, do they continue to actually give their good money to these companies? And, you know, these are my clients in many cases because I am a consultant, not just a professor and not just an author. And a lot of the companies really do not return properly. But 
Who cares? This is a this is a shareholder issue. Okay, you got a hundred bucks. Where are you going to put it? You're going to put it in Apple stock when a year ago was it in the 80s and now it's 200. Or are you going to invest in Comcast? We can get into that in a minute. Or you could put it in a media group. You could put it in in Time Warner. So part of this book is whether this a, this is a wise economic investment. So the curse of the mogul really goes to the point. Why would you invest with the mogul? Because the curse of these people is that they don't return as much dollar for dollar. So there must be something else about media that draws investors. Right. And it has to be the glamour part of it or that they're not really paying attention to the actual structure or the, you know, the long-term effects of it. I mean, a lot of times people do treat the the stock market like it's Las Vegas, which is completely stupid. I mean, of course, uh, the, the, um, the precedent of uh, the, the authors is as value investors, which means that we believe in long-term investing, really understanding what the assets of the companies are, and then making decisions about making that investment based on how uh, efficiently those assets are being uh, used. So Th- that's, you, that's you as a consultant. That's you as an investor. That's you as a professor. That's right. It's all consistent. A- and what you've found um, that put this book together is there is, in fact, Another element. There's another variable. Right. And that's the curse of the mogul. That variable for the public is that they, for some reason, believe what the mogul has to say about himself. A lot of people believe what the mogul has to say about himself. And they aren't looking at the history. I mean, for example, the film business has always been a lousy business. Let's get off that soap. I can tell me your story. Let's get down where media lives. It is a a lousy business. It's always been a lousy business. And, And, you know... One of the examples we give in the book is Universal Studios, which over the last 10 years has been owned by 10, excuse me, over the last 10 years has been owned by four different conglomerates. And it's basically done the same with every single conglomerate. It hasn't varied. It it doesn't make any sense that uh, a conglomerate should own a film studio pretty much ever. There's just no economic reason for this to happen. There's no operating reason for this to happen. There's no strategic reason for this to happen. But... Media companies like to own film companies for some reason. And if you look at film companies independent as part of something else, they just never make any money. They just don't. And what's even weirder about stuff which is going on recently is that uh, a bunch of hedge funds. I think it was private um, equity. I think it was private equity. This private equity fund decided that they could use some sort of predictive uh, algorithm and they could help. Uh, film companies decide what movies to make. I, and they think they're smarter than everybody else. Supposedly, the companies that they have given this advice to, I haven't seen the film companies making any more money. We, we talk about these kind of uh, uh, black box, predictive, I am a genius kind of things, and you know, they, they just don't work. I've stopped listening to you for a second because I have a question I want to ask, and that's oh, one of that? my... Uh, well, <laughs> how, is, how are media conglomerates different from what Sandy Wilde created in, in Citibank? Well, Citibank wasn't so great either. I mean, the idea of conglomerates... The, the supermarket, a financial supermarket. They've so isn't, just... isn't media... We're talking about convergence years ago. We're still talking about convergence. But how is, how, in your experience, how is Citi as a, or the financial supermarkets different from media companies? They're not. I mean, the, the problem with any kind of conglomerate is why are they combined? in a structural or strategic way. You have to think about, is there a cost savings? Is there an economy of scale? 
And a lot of these conglomerates, this, these, you know, financial supermarket, which there's no indication at all that they make more money or less money, their divisions together, uh, than they would separately. Um, and sometimes it's a dissynergy, which is the, the, the head of the businesses are so distracted with all these different sides of the business and the cooperation that they can't make any money. So, no, and, and, there, and, and there's City a cultural not, difference. There's, there's a cultural difference. A, a trading floor versus the investment bank. Right. Hedge versus private equity. Right. These are different cats. Right. They are. And, and the, the conglomerate world isn't something that any of the authors – condone or think is good in any way. Jonathan, he is an investment banker. Shockingly, he comes down on, on saying that a lot of these uh, acquisitions are stupid. And it's very clear in the book. He's a, he's a, he's what you would call an honest broker. I mean, in his way of oh, dealing with- Oh, your co-author. Yes. <laughs> co Nicely put. Right. The so, honest so broker. So even though, right. So even though he's an investment banker, you'd say, well, you know. You have, to, you have to take this with a grain of salt. But he does see himself as a real advisor and, and trying to give as, as honest advice about how these things are going to work as possible. Uh, the other co-author, uh, Bruce Greenwald, is uh, it, on the record it, for almost any industry, not believing in conglomerates per se. What you have to do is you have to say, well, if you're going to be combining companies, where are the synergies? And the only synergies that we believe in that almost always work are cost synergies. If you can fire a whole bunch of people and do this more efficiently, then this makes sense. If you can't, it doesn't make any sense at all. Conglomerate ideas never really make a lot of sense. If you're going to grow your business, which of course you have to, right. you really want to grow in it kind of concentric circles. You want to get deeper into a particular niche or a geographical area or a specialty. Bloomberg is a perfect example of a company which started out used doing bonds and all information having to do with bonds and has slowly, slowly increased its concentric circle so it, it, it supplies more and more product around this core business without going ahead and buying something separately. Now, they just bought Business Week, and I am not happy about it. So I'm assuming, of course, they're going to fire an awful lot of people, right. and they're going to presumably consolidate a lot of their operations. And it will be interesting to see if they do anything with Business Week. Now, Bloomberg is privately held. So we're never going to know the real story, but eventually we'll, we'll hear about what's going on there. I, I do understand. Uh, uh, now, tell me this. Yeah. Eventually you'll, un, you'll hear what's going on there. But if your analysis is based on shareholder value, they could use, they could consider uh, uh, Business Week as a necessary loss leader for what they do. And you would never know. It, it could contribute to the whole. It's almost like, and maybe this in the, let me make this as a form of the question, is what's wrong with the world's leading media companies, the ones that are in trouble are public? Are you better off if you're a private well, uh, I mean, you're, you're better off if you all you want to do is please yourself, and if it's your money and you're going to piss it away, that's okay. I mean, Michael Bloomberg, if it's his money and he wants to piss it away, it's okay. And the perfect mogul? I just had noticed that that was in one of the descriptions of the book. You do have a perfect mogul. Well, Bloomberg is the one we like the best. Look, Murdoch or uh, uh, Ted Turner, they started doing business... Uh, doing a business that they knew really well and made a lot of money for themselves. And the stuff that they did really does conform with the ways that we think media companies make money. So, for example, Ted Turner started off in billboards. Outdoor. Exactly. And he concentrated 
in a geographic area because he understood that the way he had an economy of scale had to do with the geographic concentration. And when he actually did a acquisition in that business, he did it with another guy um, who was from the Northeast, and they bought this company, and they split the assets, and, and Turner kept this the southern ones, and the other guy kept the ones in the north. So he really did understand that. Now, he went crazy afterwards, right. but he did, you know, go ahead and buy a movie studio and practically bankrupt the business because he loved Gone with the Wind. He did name his child Rhett, which is another story entirely. But, but and, and redid the movie and to, to, to put it in color. Right, right. So he had some... Right, right. Foresight for that. So, but but what I'm trying to say is that that these guys, you know, Summer Redstone, he's really wacky right now. He started his business at National Amusements. He, uh, it's a incredibly successful part of um, their uh, fortune, and their daughter, uh, his daughter Sh- Shari Redstone, runs it. She's extremely good at it, and it's totally, totally concentrated in an area. It's run unbelievably well. And they get a lot of money out of it. Again, but, but, that's private, but, uh, but we happen to know that that's the case. But isn't it also true, because it's been at least surfaced, that they, he and she have their issues? Yeah, it's been public that they do. But, but that being said, the business itself is really impressive. So, for example, Providence, Rhode Island, if you take a look at the newspaper, there's no advertising for movies in that newspaper. And you know why? Because Sherry Redstone owns every movie theater in Providence. So why should she spend any money on advertising? And that's a cost She's careful enough that she will not bother to do that. She will not bother. You just have to look at the listings, and that's the end of that. My guest, Ava Sieve, uh, is the co-author with Jonathan Nee and Bruce Greenwald of The Curse of the Mogul. And the subtitle, if you will, is What's Wrong with the World's Leading Media Companies? Tell the audience of McLaughlin at Work what is wrong with the world's leading media companies. They really keep their eye uh, off the ball from time to time. So there's there's a four basic things that are myths that a lot of the CEOs of media companies like to say, and every single one of them is just false. Okay. Do you want to know what those are? I do, but I just <laughs> want to ask you, this is in the context of whether for so, what, what is wrong with the leading, leading by definition, a leading media, media company, something's wrong with them. It, the right or wrong is whether they are a good investment. Not necessarily what their product is. This is a financial analysis as to why they are not good corporate investments. That is correct. Okay. That is correct. So the, I want to know now the four things that's wrong with them. Okay. Besides the fact that they're not good investments. Well. Much too linear. One, two, three, four. What's wrong? <laughs> okay. The first thing is that the, these businesses believe that content is king, that they should invest in content directly, and that they – that if you own the content, therefore, if you own good content, therefore, you're a good company. So that's just false. Mostly, content providers are uh, are really at the mercy of every other part of the business. They generally don't make much money. And about a million different companies can be a content provider. You take any example. Let's take the example of book publishing. I mean, there's how many books are published in the United States? Do you, know, do you know how many business titles there are a year? <laughs> a lot. Eight? to 11,000 right. business titles a year, depending on how you count. And everybody can write a book about it or wants to, and there's a lot to choose from. And so if you're in the content business, you know, your revenue is going to be driven down because the, you don't have any price power. I mean, there's a few celebrities out there, but mostly you have no pricing power. So that's number one. Okay. Content isn't good. Uh, uh, is, ha- having said that, as an author, 
Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> is this your first book? It is. Okay. It is my first Congratulations. book. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. So, uh, so the first is content is not king. Right. And, and starving artists prove the rule. Yes, they do. Okay, they number do. two. Number two is that uh, globalization is a really good idea. That you, in fact, should increase your you should increase your footprint to globalization and to a global level. That that's a good thing. That you, every single CEO always says before he acquires something, well, you know, it's going to help our global footprint. And it turns out it's really, really, really hard to run a business across a lot of countries, especially a media business where you don't really understand what the local culture is. And if you're buying the media business in a different country and you're keeping everything in place. Why are you buying it? I mean, if you can't have the effect on it, why buy it? And if you can, and to have an effect on it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's that's number two. God, you're ruining my world. I'm really sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not that so sorry. We, got, we got content. We got globalization. Number three. Growth is good. That is just false. <laughs> okay. Because growth. We're going what, back to comic books. We're going to be back, back there, back there with Marvel. Growth, right, right. Well, growth is good at the right price. I mean, no one ever seems to talk about what the profits are. So, growth, in order to have growth, you have to finance it, and a lots of times uh, the media companies will just buy a top line and not understand that it's really going to be incredibly expensive and they're going to lose money. And so, if you have Growth, which is not profitable, you destroy value in your company. And all, uh, virtually all growth by media companies is by acquisition? Is that uh, a fair statement? That is, they, of the categories, if we're going to make a generalization, yeah. they are the category of industry that has the most acquisition of any other company, any other category. So they have more than 50% of their growth is through acquisition, whereas the next highest category is one-third. Other growth. Okay, and, what, and what's that next? What? I knew you were going to say that, and I don't know. <laughs> okay, okay, that's all right. This, this isn't stop the stars. You're my I star. Mean, I know. You're my star. But I know. But I have to look it up. Okay. All right. And then number four? And the number four is convergence is a good thing. God. You are just <laughs> shattering. This is Tommy. You're, shat you're shattering the mirror. Yeah. So, so here's why. Convergence. What does convergence mean? Well, we think convergence means, or we defined it uh, so that we could actually talk about why it's not any good, is when different industry verticals start start sort of moving into each other. So that if you're in one business, suddenly you have competitors from another business. So the example of convergence is uh, the cable business. Let's take the cable business. Cable business, if you're a cable distributor, you, you're Time Warner Cable, let's say, Cable um, operator. Your cable operator, you uh, have customers and they have a uh, wire that's run through uh, the streets and it comes out to your house and you watch TV. Well, then the cable operator decided that he was going to offer the phone business. Sure. He was going to make. And suddenly, Triple play. Correct. At, well, and also, of course, uh, modems, Right, sorry. But, which is the same. But so suddenly, the phone companies have this competitor that they didn't expect. Snuck up on them. That's right. In the middle of the night. That's right. And so now... Not to mention wireless. Now the cable company... Now suddenly the phone companies had people selling uh, phone services. And then what the phone company decided to do is they were going to sell 
cable services. So they were going to start having programming. And so this is convergence. And what's happening is that they're competing against each other. They're building in a double infrastructure. So suddenly, the economy is having this wasted infrastructure. If you have two wires coming to a house versus one, that's incredibly wasteful. And right now, at least in New York City, they're not competing on price. But presumably, they could actually ruin their price control and start fighting with each other about price. They have maintained their prices, so they don't seem to be uh, trying to chip away that way, but they're doing it in other ways. So there, there's an example, a perfect example of where convergence is really a uh, way to lower the amount of profits within an industry. And this happens whenever there's a digital play, as digitization becomes more and more widespread in the media business, this convergence is going to happen. It's going to be harder and harder to make a living. Which, is, which has happened in the absolute bloom of your professional career. That's correct. I've been right there from the beginning to the now to, to where we are so now. So the mess we're in is due to people like yourself. Right. Who are you? Interesting. Is media in a mess? And what is that costing Joe Public? The public has done quite well. Okay. I mean, the consumers are actually getting stuff, more stuff, right. for a cheaper price. And um, the, they, of course, benefit from price wars. But the, and so I, you, know, you can't complain if you want um, to see, um, if you want to get a phone, you know, make a phone call. Because, of course, cellular prices have dropped considerably. Right. Um, and if you want to buy something, uh, online, look what's happened in terms of uh, comparative pricing. I mean, Amazon discounts everything, and then they have Barnes and Noble. So those, these are two websites that sell books, for example, and they're busy competing against each other now. And you know what happened with um, Walmart and the book business? Right. They came in and they said, "Oh, guess what? We're going to sell every bestseller for ten dollars." So they suddenly got into the game, and they're being they're fighting with Amazon and with uh, Martin Neville. Do you know why they did that? I do not. Okay, well, I'll tell you why, because okay. I have a theory. Okay. And theory is, is that they decided to, to give warning to Amazon to stay out of their territory. Because Amazon's bread and butter is in the book business, but they're busy selling a whole lot of other stuff, right? Electronics and clothing, and you can go on Amazon and do all that. And they are undercutting Walmart, who's supposed to be the low price guy. So Walmart said, you know what? Let me just give you a little shot across the bows here. You keep that up, we're going we're gonna to steal your lunch because we're going to charge $10 for all the bestsellers, which you really move. And it's not a big percentage of our inventory. We're not going to lose a ton of money, but we're really going to make you suffer. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how this resolves. If Amazon is going to step back and not try to get into Walmart's territory. To be continued. Yes, indeed. That particular one, to be continued <laughs> with A.A. Vassif. Uh, and the book is The Curse of the Mogul, What's Wrong with the World's Leading Media Companies uh, by Portfolio is the is the imprint. What do people come away with? I mean, having read the book, what is the aftertaste? What's the message that you would like, you and your co-authors would like to give to the public who will read this? Well, the first public that I want to read it, actually, that I'm most interested in is, is the professional public. So these are managers and people who are in these businesses. I mean, it's not a huge industry, but there's quite a lot of people who are in the industry. And actually, in a funny way, it's getting bigger because there's a lot more amateurs who are going into the business mm -hmm. with blogging and publishing things and doing music and so forth. So... Um, the, even though we're looking at this at a strategic level, I do think that there's a lot of information here about how you actually can make money for your businesses and you know for the 
30 or 50 or 100,000 managers who are in the position to actually affect the businesses they're in, I think that they can learn something from this. So McLaughlin at work can learn something from this book. That's right. Okay. And so one of the things that we really respect, and probably it's because we're, we're, we teach at a business school, and we're just oriented that in way. The, in the media capital of the world. Yes, that's true. That's true. In New York City. So we do have a lot of exposure to people who are in this industry. Um, but but we do think that managers make a big difference, that how you run the company, paying attention to the details really matters. And part of the curse of the moguls is that these guys sometimes have such a high-level uh, look at things, and they believe in these you know, M&A things and not paying attention to the cost structure or how to be really efficient in all the different ways that you run your business. And even though that's the most unsexy thing that you could possibly think of, it is really makes a huge difference in how well you actually run your business. And, you know, you said, well, the consumers do better if there's a price war, but if you have a good business and you can put food on the table and you can, and you can employ people, that's the reason that you, you know, you want to be in capitalism. So it actually is good to be efficient at what you do and to actually make some money for your shareholders, for yourself, for your employees. So we think that the, the lessons of paying attention to the details, focusing, having a niche specialty, really uh, understanding what that is, how you can cooperate with people in your business, and it's not bad. I mean, a lot of the issues have to do with testosterone in the business world, that you just cannot understand how to cooperate with your competitors. Well, there's legal, perfectly legal ways. You stay out of each other's way. You do partnership marketing. You do lots of things that you can cooperate and make more money. Which flies in the face of being a mogul, of course. It does. It does. It's, it's uh, very difficult for uh, guys who have uh, sort of fought their way up to think about this in a different way. But it's, um, it's, just, it's very logical when you think of it in an economic way. One of the things we want our, um, our managers to do, really, is to, to close their eyes and think about if this was a perfect setup for this industry, what would it look like? You know, and you have to kind of forget everything that exists now. Right. And once you have the ideal picture, you think, okay, well, that's what I'm going to strive for. What are the cooperative things I can do? What can I do to cut costs out? How can I you know, buy this company and then fire all these people who are in this unproductive area and then make more money? So, is, so for example, mm -hmm. I keep talking here, but for example, Good. Yahoo and Microsoft. Mm -hmm. That actually probably made a lot of sense because – Microsoft, although they didn't quite say it, they were going to fire a whole lot of people at Yahoo, and that was how they were going to actually you know, make that merger work. And they do have a lot of duplication. It would make some sense. But that didn't happen because, of course, the guys who owned Yahoo didn't want their employees to get fired. No one ever does. Right. The topical issue of the Comcast and uh, NBC Universal: good deal, bad deal. Who benefits? Who's the winner? Who's the loser? Well, I mean, w following your theory. Yes, we are. We think that it's a, a kind of a crazy thing. I mean, it's cable, a patch quilt. I well, mean, for right. Looking I mean, at cable, it, in part. cable companies do make money, and they're buying some revenue streams that um, are incredibly stable, have very, very high margins, that kind of thing. But why Comcast should own it versus anybody else, there's no particular reason. And will it be a dissynergy in the long run? It might be. Why? Well, what might happen is one of the things that cable uh, – people who own lots of cable programming companies, so like Viacom owns like 20 and Hearst owns 20, and what they can do is they can hold up 
the cable operator for uh, for fees. So they so if you actually are the cable operator and you own the uh, cable programming companies, are you, you going to take a gun and turn it on your own head and say, you know, you know, put up or shut up? Yeah, it's well, not in the possible. New York market, we saw that with Yes and Cablevision and right. uh, the, the sports channels and who would get to see what depending on who owned it and who right. would feed it to them. Right. And so the, the reason that you – one of the reasons that economically is that these cable programming companies are owned by the same uh, owner is that actually there is an advantage. There is a cost advantage to that. And it's, it has to do with negotiation and a few other things. So, so, so what? So why does Comcast want to do this? I, I don't know. I mean, they, we think that possibly because the Roberts family, even though the shareholders of Comcast are, can be diversified, but they can own Comcast and they can own whatever they want, the Roberts, their entire fortune is tied up in Comcast. So for them to be diversified, they actually have to buy stuff, which is diverse. And so they're economic interests just aren't aligned with their general shareholder. So we talked about that a little bit in the beginning. That's another reason why uh, moguls really aren't um, in the, aren't like you and me. <laughs> because right. their fortunes are tied up and they have to diversify with your money, even though you don't have to. And it, it, to some extent, they become the drivers of the business, which is a lot different than professional managers of public corporations. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, as these things go, uh, Brian Roberts and his father are tremendous uh, business people, obviously. They've built this incredible business. But at this point, this particular deal doesn't make a lot of financial sense. And we do predict it will destroy value. In the book, we have a, a very long discussion about when they bought Media One the AT&T thing about how it looked like it was good, but when you went back and did all the financial calculations, it actually lost value for them. And it would, seemed like a perfect deal at the time because it was another cable company another uh, that they were buying, and it was the same business, and it looked like they could have an economies of scale and so forth and so on. But they actually paid way too much money for it, which is what happened in the end. They needed to be that big. And the question is, why? So the purchase of NBC Universal is it will be bigger, but it's not bigger in the right place. It doesn't give them scale. It gives them more stuff that's sort of next to the things that they have, but it has nothing to do with helping their cost structure. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, turns out. Yes. Um, people who read the book will have an indication of a better way of looking at it. Yes, I hope um, so. And, and may be able to draw independent conclusions as investors, whether they should. Yes. Or from an academic interest as to how to grow media companies. Yes. And how not to. I hope so. I think, I think they will learn a lot. The Curse of the Mogul. What's wrong with the world's leading media companies? Jonathan Nee, Bruce Greenwald, and my guest, Ava Sieve. Thanks for being with me. Thanks so much. And now, after a brief recognition for a sponsor of McLaughlin at Work, Classroom 24-7, there on your screen or in your ear, if you need web learning opportunities, particularly in the way of certification for training having been delivered on the web, we encourage you to look up and look into Classroom 24-7. They do it better than anybody we know particularly if it's necessary, because that's where they come in. Paul McLaughlin, moving rapidly into number two, Nancy Ankowitz, our second episode, second portion of this wonderful day with you, Self-Promotion for Introverts, The Quiet Guide to Getting Ahead. Delightful, Nancy Ankowitz. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, and let me 
introduce my guest by quoting from her dedication. And I quote, dedicated to you who go mum at meetings, get passed up for promotions, and would rather read about the powers that be than rub elbows with them. You're the brains behind the operation, the creative virtuosa, and the walking wiki. You want to make more of a difference in your life and the lives of others, dash. But first, they need to know who you are. And my guest is Nancy? Ankowitz. Thank you. And your book? Self-Promotion for Introverts, The Quiet Guide to Getting Ahead. And you know about which you speak. I hope so. You, <laughs> so you, you are an introvert? I am and an introvert. And now you're putting that to your best advantage. Absolutely. That's me. Um, this is a business book. It is a business it book. It is a serious book because it is helping people overcome what is one of the great um, inadequacies or inaccuracies about themselves, and that is when people maybe don't project as well as either they think they should mm -hmm. or that, in fact, they do not project. Mm -hmm. Where do you, how did you come to this? I took the at an early age, perhaps. At, at an early age, well, <laughs> I was in corporate, so I wasn't that early. But I, I took the Myers Briggs Myers Briggs Type Indicator. It's a very popular personality it assessment. Is. All, all of us of an age have taken that. Okay, <laughs> there you go. So I took it, and I was surprised to find out that I was an introvert. And I really didn't know what that meant. And then I learned that it means I gain my energy from solo activities instead of social activities, the way an extrovert would. And, and in the Myers-Briggs, was, was there a, uh, it's either one or the other? Pretty you're much, either yeah. an introvert or yeah, an extrovert. You're right. Okay. It's either one or the other. Yeah. And I'm definitely an I, an introvert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> However, I'm social. If you're an introvert, you often like people, however, in doses. So you may enjoy uh, meeting with one person at a time and having deep conversations, listening. You may also enjoy research, reading, writing, quiet activities, as opposed to working the room at a cocktail party. And there's nothing at all wrong with being an introvert. It's just the perception in our society as introverts being loners and losers and something wrong with us. It's totally not true. Um, an introvert, as a, but you can be an aggressive introvert, I oh, assume. Sure. Why yes. not? Of course. Well, I mean, so there's, it, it's not a, um, it's, it's not necessarily that you're removed entirely and sure. or that you don't lack the desire to do more. But Correct. obviously your revelation to yourself came as a surprise. Yes. What would, how would you have, you wouldn't have thought yourself as being one or the other. Right. However, it all made sense after I took the MBTI that in meetings with lots of people, I am, it's hard for me. Unless I've prepared in advance, I've, let's say, practiced my part and arrived rested. Now that's an introvert. As opposed to an extrovert who would think as she or he speaks. I need to think first and then speak. So there's some essential differences between us as introverts and extroverts. And by learning that, I learned to navigate the corporate world much better and also as an entrepreneur. So now I offer what I've learned to my readers and my students and my clients. And it has nothing to do with what you think you have to offer to the group. 
No, not really. In, in the particular setting. You can have all kinds of different ta talents as an introvert or an extrovert. Yeah, that doesn't... You're first yeah. an extrovert or an introvert, and then you could have all the other pluses and minuses associated all with all the, the other, other personality. Sure. Although, although, as an introvert, chances are you have more quiet strengths. You are probably, if you're a creative, you probably create what you do alone, quietly, or one-on-one -on -one in deep conversation, as opposed to a creative extrovert who would be getting his or her energy from other people. I think that, uh, is it fair to say that introverts are smarter than extroverts? No. Now you're just, now you're just saying that. No. You're just saying that because no. I'm, I'm the host and you're the guest. No. But, I, but I think that there is, at least in the, the perception, yes. either that somebody uh, does not talk a lot or they have nothing to say, and yet that's, that's simply not true. No. It's more likely that when an introvert speaks, she has a lot to say, and she's thought about it, and then people will listen. And she makes sense. And she makes sense, okay. one hopes. However, to get her there and not just have her silence in a meeting, she does need to develop some skills. And the great news is all we're talking about is skills in self-promotion for introverts. Anybody can learn a skill. Anyone can learn to promote herself. Anybody can learn to be a public speaker. Just skills. Yeah, e easier said than done. But I thought it was interesting in your dedication that you had to First, they had they, but first, you said they need to know who you are, and in some measure, to achieve those skills, you have to recognize that you are an introvert. Yes. Um, is that something that you can learn in school? I mean, how, how, the realization that you are an innie, not an outie. In school, I think not. Without some self-awareness and perhaps taking a personality assessment, not necessarily. No, I don't. I don't think that's commonly taught in schools. Yeah, particularly since it's you're either one or the other. So they yes. they're not going to arrange classes by yes. something as defined by uh, introverts or e extroverts. Yes. So um, when you found out that you were an introvert, um, did the did the same people who offered the test offer a solution or no, a correction? I, well, I don't see there as there is a solution or a correction because there's nothing to correct. It's we have strengths and we have challenges, like anybody, and so do extroverts. Extroverts, their challenges might be they talk so much that introverts can't get heard. An introvert, uh, her challenge is so she's so quiet that nobody knows what she's doing. So if you're an introvert, it's important that, let's say if you're in a corporate environment, that your boss knows what your contributions are, that you spell them out, let's say at a weekly meeting, that you get on the agenda of the meeting. So it's, it's important that you practice getting heard. Right. And I guess um, a good point, because I think I, was, I, I missed in the title and in the substance of the book that this is a learned skill to, to be able to promote yourself. Yes. So it's a, the, the antithesis of what people anticipate yes, uh, in an introvert is yes. that they simply won't get ahead because they're not going to push themselves. Yes. And this is the way to do that. Yes, So what is. did you do? 
What did I do? I learned to speak up at meetings. I learned to become a public speaker, which is important. I think for, for many people to get ahead in their careers, it's important to know how to get up in front of a room and speak confidently. Look people in the eye, square up your shoulders, use your hand gestures, watch your posture, use your voice with modulation. All these things are so important. And how did you learn that? I got some coaching and I you just did. practiced. And where, how did you know that you were succeeding? Oh, I, you could look at the people in the room. Ah, and, it's re, and then I guess it's self-reinforcing. Uh, yes, very much. Very much. And actually, one of my, now as a coach, as a business communication coach, and someone who teaches public speaking at New York University, one of the things I like to do is videotape my clients and my students because there's nothing like videotape. They can see how well they're doing. It's, it's one of the best tools. And I recommend that for anyone, specific, particularly for an introvert, to do, let's say, mock meetings, mock interviews on videotape and see what do you look like? How does your voice sound? It's an amazing tool. It is. I think everybody is surprised at how their voice sounds. Yes. I don't care who you are because in your head, yes. you sound like somebody else. Oh, yes. And, or surprised. you never know who you sound like. Yes. And then the first time... Now with the magic of recording, but back in the old days, you never really knew. It came as a surprise at some karaoke night that somebody actually taped that that's what you sound like, I guess. Yes. Most of us learn that we don't sound like what we thought we sound like when we start to sing. And people, <laughs> people cringe. I mean, you offered to sing. No, I, don't, no. I, don't, I don't know whether introvert, introverts can. Right. I don't know whether you can be a public speaker, an American Idol, and be an introvert. So I, we won't. We That's won't another skill. You, we don't have you sing. Um, what, what are, give some uh, public speaking uh, tidbits for introverts or for people in general. For introverts in particular, well, actually, this, many of these will work for extroverts. Right, but give the well. focus for the introverts. First of all, the beauty for you as an introvert, public speaking, is you get to speak to a lot of people one time rather than tiring yourself out going one after another after another. So it's a great skill to learn. So some tips about public speaking for introverts. One thing is, again, think of speaking to one person in the audience at a time. Make eye contact, one, two, three, with one person. Square up your shoulders with them as if you're doing, let's say, a waltz with them or a partner dance. And then keep your hands open and out. Watch your posture. So all these things are very important and make your points clear and crisp and engaging to the audience. Make them active and make them connected. Target your audience. What do they care about? Make that important. Make your message important and clear to your audience. In preparation, and, and this goes a little bit to the, the point of connecting with your audience, in the preparation for somebody, particularly at the beginning where they, they know what they're going to say, how do you caution people about when they, when they look out and people are falling asleep? I mean, how can, how can the person who's fully prepared to say what they're prepared to say be also aware of what the audience, how the audience is reacting and adjust on the fly? 
That's an important thing. And one thing to do is to speak with your audience. Find out what's their mood, what's going on for them. Are you catching them right after lunch where everybody's blood sugar just goes down and they're tired? I mean, there are times it's appropriate to ask your audience, this is my plan for today. Here's my roadmap of what we're going to cover. One, two, and three. Does that sound good? Is there something else that's more compelling for you? Give me a burning question. Really make it about them, and people will stay awake. It's a little bit like what uh, Mayor Ed Koch used to say, is how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Sure. I'm losing you. That's just human. How am I doing? Right. I want to know. And for the, when you school people and they uh, are watching themselves, how, how do you correct them? How do people self-correct when they know they're going down the wrong path? Give some of your coaching methods for, for taking somebody who had thought they've prepared and really hasn't improved at all. Where do you, what are the skosh here and the skosh there that makes a difference? I break it down into the elements that they need to work on. And when I videotape, it's amazing because they see it. They'll say, I'm fidgeting. And I'll say, yes, you're fidgeting. So now let's prepare the first few lines and let's really think about what you're doing with your hands. And let's try the beginning of your speech without any words. And that's totally weird for everybody. <laughs> now, how, how, how do you mean? What, what, what happens? What I do you wish do? I could do that on radio. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. We'll get it. If you're good at this, we'll get it. A bit of a Just don't act. say anything for two minutes, and I'll just tell people what you're doing. I'm giving a great speech right now. <laughs> she is spectacular. And, and she, I should, has, has, should not hesitate to say, is Nancy Ankowitz, and her book is Self-Promotion for Introver Introverts, A Quiet Guide to Getting Ahead. So you tell them to give a speech without talking. You bet. The first few minutes. It's the weirdest thing, but it works. <laughs> I've had whole classrooms of people doing that, and they crack up at first, but then we get serious about it, and it really works. So that one is, you, you give a speech, but words don't come out. Words don't you, come but out. But you're, you're thinking them or yeah, saying them. Yeah. Now, what are you doing with your hands? How's your posture? What are your feet doing? Are they planted? Are you doing the jig? What's going on right now? So these are things that we need to concentrate on when we're speaking is just as important as the words or more so. Well, it's interesting because you and I um, uh, just touched on this before we, before we started. Um, and that is how the brain works. So it, it, it's interesting. I hadn't applied this to, speak, to speaking, but if you do something repetitively, your brain doesn't really know what it's doing. Right. And so if somebody constantly feels more comfortable sticking their hands in your pocket, in their pocket, or scratching their nose or the back of their head, right. um, they have to, they, they really are unaware of it. So right. one of the techniques you have is don't talk. Don't talk. Just think about what you're talking and see what the, be right. focused on what the rest of you is doing. And it's particularly important for an introvert because if you're an introvert, you tend to have deep knowledge about a few things, one or two topics. So you pride yourself on your expertise and that is, that probably defines you. So you're deep into this topic that you know. However, communicating it can be a different story. So trying it first without words and seeing what do I look like, are my hands in my pocket, or am I scratching my nose, you get immediate feedback. And it's, you say, well, that's not how I want to appear in front of an audience. That won't be very compelling. And then you learn ways of 
of fixing that. And it's so easy. I mean, it's, it, it can be done very quickly. What level of uh, executive, um, and I'm going to come back to gender here in a minute because I know she used the term she a lot. Um, let, let's start with that. Is there, are there, I'm sure that introverts and extroverts are equally represented in the sexes. Pretty close, yeah. Uh, are there different ways, do you change people in different ways depending on their sex? Gender? <laughs> How, how, how their approach? I mean, do you have to do you have to speak to a woman introvert different? Teach them differently than you do a man. The main difference is that as women, we're often taught to speak quietly and to be demure in growing up. Mm -hmm. And those of us who are, I would say there are a lot of there's a lot of overlap with those of us who are introverts because we tend to speak more quietly and even more slowly and don't want the spotlight on us. So I would say there's some overlap there. However, for men who are introverts, there's still the issue of the spotlight and how to deal with that and what do you need to get in order to get ahead of in your career. Are people who call on your services, the services of your coaching organization. What, what, how do you bill yourself, or what is the, your organization? I'm a business communication coach. Okay. And when people approach you, is, do they realize that this is what is holding them back? Oh, yes, yes. They're looking to... Now, do you have a, a link in with the Myers-Briggs so everybody comes out as an introvert? Oh, no. <laughs> get, get, no, get, no, get your no, number. No, no. That would be great. No. That's exactly what you should do. That's pretty you should, funny. You no, should no, have them no, leaked. No, no, no. <laughs> we'll send you to no. Nancy. Nancy will correct your problem no, because you no, are no. an I introvert. No, no, no. We no. have just the person to help That's you out. That's funny. <laughs> no, nothing like that. You don't do that. No, okay. No, no. So people are, shouldn't be concerned that if they take the test, they're going to be immediately connected to you. No. But, but they should. No, no. But they should because you can help them out. I can help. What, what do you, how, how do you start? How do I start? How do you start with a problem in addressing a person who's an introvert? I'm going to put that back on you. You're a coach, too. Okay. What do we do best as coaches? Well, we should listen. We listen. But, 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 ding, uh, but ding, I'm ding. a host, so I don't, <laughs> I don't do nearly as much listening. But when I edit these conversations, I usually take myself out, so people think I don't say very much, which obviously isn't true. I but was listening. You, yeah, I was hoping you would say that. We listen. We listen. We're very present with our clients. We listen. We show concern. We're, we're active listeners. We ask questions to get them to do the thinking and to help them move forward, and also to help build the skills that they need to get ahead in their careers. And I guess it comes back to the brain, is that when you listen and you have other people stop and think about what they are doing, that's probably something that they're not used to doing. Yes, in fact, I gave a lecture not too long ago, and I asked how many people in this room have been listened to deeply today? And out of 50 people, one person raised his hand. So it's something that, as coaches, a very important service we deliver is we get our clients to talk in ways that are safe, they're in a safe environment with someone they can trust, and they're actually going to be listened to deeply. And it helps them move their thoughts forward. And it helps, I guess, that they're <coughs> paying you and me to listen. So well, sometimes, I guess, if you're in a corporate setting where people don't have to listen to you and right. then they don't, that's right. reinforcing for the introvert that they shouldn't speak. That's true. That's true. Absolutely. So part of it is being effective. 
Yes. How does your book work? You've written a book on this. You want people to buy the book. It obviously is an extension of your um, of your um, uh, practice. And interestingly, I've spoken to a number of people who are who are coaches, and I think that and this on the issue of books for mm -hmm. a minute, that sure. a book like this, Self-Promotion for Introverts, people will benefit from it, but it's truly the coaching, it's meeting the person, it's having that interaction that really makes a difference. Isn't yes. that true? Yes. I mean, it's almost like a personal trainer that you may be able physically to push yourself, but no matter how far you push yourself, it's never as far as you could with a coach. I think coaching is amazing. However, I do think that there are many people, particularly if you're an introvert, who can get a lot of assistance from reading. So reading, but I think... Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Reading and doing the exercises in my book can take you very far. Not everybody needs a coach. And I also think uh, uh, friends, colleagues, mentors, great bosses, there are other people in our lives who can help us. So, and I think getting support is really important. I talk a lot about that in my book. Do you have to wait to an adult to address this? I mean, as I, as I mentioned to you, my, um, my uh, son was involved in speech and debate. So he was trained in it in a way that I think it's remarkable to see young people who have learned to conquer their fears of public speaking at an early age because it sets them up for life and oh, yes. a life skill. Definitely. But uh, for people who are, let's take parents, people who see their children and see their children as not particularly outspoken, what is your guidance to them? I think the first thing is to deeply listen to your children. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is. is. It is. Particularly since you grow up with them and you don't know when they have something to say. Yes. Yes. Well, my book is about business, so this is a little bit out of what I normally speak about. That's all right. About. We could, we could, However, read, we could read, do this as a no, child's book. I mean, yeah, you could be in a different shelf in Barnes yeah. & Noble's. I, I think whatever your natural preferences are, so if you're an extrovert and your children are introverts, or you have one child who's an introvert, to really balance, to balance your normal uh, social energy and I'll make sure there's space for them. And also, with anyone who's an introvert, to give them plenty of space, to allow them some privacy, and these things are important for an introvert, to have that quiet time, rather than feeling like they always need to be going somewhere and saying something and interfacing with someone. It strikes me that you're a relatively serene person. Are oh. introverts more? I mean, you, you, I was going to ask. I was going to get to levity here in a minute because I, you know, there are. I think that's an important uh, way of communicating is with a certain sense of humor and mm -hmm. the like. Mm -hmm. um, but, but is it, introverts have a tendency either to be to truly be serene or maybe just to be a. Uh, Churn and earn or burn and funk is the is the book, <laughs> as the song That's used to go. Which are you? Are you serene or are you a burning urn of? I am a burning urn. I'm a total type A. Oh, you are. Okay. Yes, I'm a total type A. Well, I think a. that's important to point yeah. out. Yeah. The, the, as you pointed out, external versus uh, introvert versus extrovert. You could still be. You are yes. a type A. Yes, I am. And you knew that before you were an introvert. I always knew I was type A. I yeah. I've been a motor. Just yeah. Strong. Have to get things done. Uh, yeah. Always. <laughs> Constantly on. And, and do you have a sense of humor? No, none. None whatsoever. Don't like laughing. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> 
you fooled me there for a minute. But it, but how do you now in that? How do you teach people? I mean, is is one of the ways that people can learn how to speak is how to tell a joke, which I've never been able to do. Me I mean, I can neither. do them, I can't prepare a joke. <laughs> me neither. And I'm always amazed by how many public speakers uh, use that crutch so effectively. Yes. To get them on stage and to grab their audience. What's, yes. what's your do you do you deal with humor in your um in your coaching? I yes, very much. Tell so, me a joke. <laughs> well, see, I I also cannot. I'm completely incapable of telling a joke. However, I can be funny. I can tell funny stories. So, we each play to our strengths. If you're not good at memorizing a joke, don't memorize a joke. Do something else. Find something funny in the audience. Be human with people. I bet you you make people laugh in your coaching sessions. I, I do. I do, and as a public speaker, but I but I can't tell a joke. Same here. So don't. And there be are other people. <laughs> but I want to learn how to. Te- so I'm coming oh, to you, okay. so I'm oh, not going to okay. come to you to learn how no. to joke. Okay, no. fine. <laughs> Forget the, about the, it. <laughs> Self promotion, but not humor. <laughs> no, 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 yes, no, no. Humor is humor is but telling a joke. Yes, yes, yes. I guess, that, but that should be a skill. Yes, yes, uh, comedy classes. I, I've taken that. I, I took uh, stand-up comedy classes. No, no, it's not for me. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was And, and what, how, how do they teach stand-up comedy? I, I, Explain know, that to the audience. No, I'm asking you a question, Nancy Yankovitz. Okay, how okay. do you, le- what, do they, what do they tell you? How can you be funny when you don't necessarily, how do you tell a joke? Timing, obviously. This is why I failed <laughs> stand-up comedy <laughs> class. But I'll tell you what I did well at, and we, okay. which was fun. And I recommend for all introverts is to take improvisation classes. I took improv comedy for many years and that helped me navigate the corporate world. Because as an introvert, you're more challenged by speaking by speaking while you're thinking. It's very hard. So Improv gets you to say something in the moment without thinking about it, and you're bouncing off the, your partners that you're working with on stage. It's a great, great practice. So I think it's good for all introverts. You are very well-rounded. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did a book um, with uh, Robin, Robin Koval, who, uh-huh. whose firm... Um, uh, is uh, was involved with creating the Affleck Duck, oh, and she wrote yes. a couple of books: uh, yes, the, yes. the the, uh, the uh, Power of Nice, the Power of Small. I think yes. it was in the Power of Nice that she had pointed out, and I've used this often on McLaughlin at work, um, that uh, I- improv relies on positive comments. Yes, all you can only say yes. You Absolutely. can only say yes. You can only say yes. Yeah. But but I was well into my dotage before I heard that. I never knew that that was one of the things about. Uh, yes, it, it's it's so essential in any in in so many ways in negotiating, in presenting, in selling, in in so many human interactions. If we just keep moving forward instead of blocking the other person, saying no, I can't do that. It stops the conversation. So it's a brilliant thing about improv, and it's so essential for introverts. Wow. Wait, where do you, there must be a lot of, are there a lot of improv classes in New York? Yeah, sure. Can you do improv online? There must, there must be some, <laughs> uh, must be something where we could take, you can, we can take the Nancy and Paul act online yeah, doing yeah, improv. Right. Yeah, why not? Uh, so, but now, let, let, now let's get into your book a little bit. Okay, sure. Uh, just, just in the following, the following how, how, how did you construct your book? to help people. When people buy Self-Promotion for Introverts, uh, yes. McGraw-Hill, yes. The Quiet Guide to Getting Ahead, sure. what should they expect? They should expect to get a fun introduction, and then they are going to learn 
to make their negative self-talk more conscious. And so, so many people I've worked with have shared things like, I'm too old for where I should, I'm not where I should be for my age, I'm too old, I don't have enough degrees, all these horrible things. And they have PhDs and they're top architects and top doctors and all this stuff. So it's first to recognize the kind of noise that goes through your head and then learn to identify and celebrate your strengths, which is super important for an introvert because we tend to be less inclined to, to play up our strengths. So, and then many, many tools and techniques to help you develop the skills to get your name out there and get the recognition you deserve. And then at the end of the book, there's some fun stories about how I got all kinds of celebrity quotes and different kinds of advice from various Bill Clinton, Warren Buffett, et cetera. Give you a Warren Buffett story. Okay. So I was at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting a couple of years ago. And I was with my boyfriend, and we strategized. We're both introverts. So we strategized, how are we going to get a quote from Warren Buffett? And we asked at a, a uh, cocktail party the night before, dinner the night before. We said, has anyone here, it was a Motley Fool group, has anyone here asked Warren Buffett a question? And everyone was sort of like, oh, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. <laughs> so Can't, can't approach the oracle. No, no, <laughs> Don't no, know how no, to no, do no. that. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. We got a hot tip. Somebody told us, his name is Mike Klein, he told us that if you line up at the overflow room, you can, you can get your question answered. So we went in this giant arena, the Quest Center in Omaha. There were 31,000 people. Everyone is racing up the escalators to get a, you know, get their And this is, this and is for a young woman from the Bronx who's, yes. in, <laughs> who's in Omaha. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. actually, right. I took okay. an apartment there yeah. for a month because okay. I just wanted some quiet time to do my writing. You bet. So, loved Omaha, by the way. So, we went, we found this overflow room, and we were the first and second people in this room. So we each got to ask a question. Mine was for my book, and my boyfriend's was about investing. And I was prepared to be totally thrown out because it wasn't about you know, Berkshire Hathaway or investing. However, I asked Warren Buffett, what advice would you give to an introvert to help him or her advance in her career? And he completely embraced the question and he talked about how the how public speaking and writing are so undertaught in in school mm -hmm. and how he went to Dale Carnegie as a young man and you've probably heard this story uh, since then but he uh, for, first brought it he first wrote a check out then he stopped payment to the check and then he got up his courage and then he brought cash for 100 bucks way back when and the room was filled with people who could barely say their name, and and then he took the course, and then he became a public speaker after that, and, and taught classes, and now look at him, of course. But he talked about how vital a skill that is, and I, I couldn't agree more. So he really focused on that. So that's the oracle. That's a great story. Yeah, a great is. story, as told by Nancy Ankowitz. The book is self-promotion for introverts: the quiet guide to getting ahead. And um, now your book just came out. Yes. And you are available for coaching. Yes. And you do coaching across the breadth of this land. Yes. And uh, what's next? After self-promotion for introverts, what do you do? What are you going to do for your next act? 
Ah, uh, that's a great question. I'm going to leave that as a mystery for now and say stay tuned to www.selfpromotionforintroverts.com <laughs> and we'll stay connected. And I'll tell you one thing about blogging for an introvert. It's really gotten me, ooh, people want to hear the real deal. They want to hear from me, who I am. And as an introvert, I'm very private. So it's getting me to stretch a little. Wow. Writing and now here appearing with me, appearing. Oh, yes. Paul Appe McLaughlin. Appearing on radio. <laughs> on, uh, on McLaughlin at work. Uh, Nancy, thanks very much for you. what you bring to the table and how you express Thank it. Thank you. What a pleasure. Good day.